everybody. Welcome to the Northwest Passage podcast. We're recording on Tuesday, July 28, 2020. I'm KLCC News Director Rachel McDonald. We're continuing to discuss the protests and events around the Black Lives Matter movement that picked up momentum two months ago after the killing of George Floyd in Minnesota. After weeks of peaceful protests here in Eugene and Springfield, things got more tense Saturday night, which ended with police deploying tear gas. We want to talk about how we got here and the response to recent events. And today we're talking with KLCC reporters Brian Bull, Nathan Bouquet, and Elizabeth Gabriel. Hi. Good morning, or good day. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) Hello. Let's catch up on the latest events here in Eugene. Nathan, you covered the Saturday night protest at the Eugene Federal Courthouse. It was meant to be in solidarity with Portland protesters who've been confronted by federal agents over the last several weeks during Black Lives Matter protests. Can you describe how the evening started? Certainly. There was maybe a hundred or so people just kind of dispersed around the area. There was even a musician playing some music. It was pretty relaxed as far as things go. Um, A couple different groups I could see right off the bat were a bunch of different moms dressed in yellow. People dressed completely head to toe in black. And then just what seemed like some some community members here and there as well. And some folks showed up who were counter-protesters, correct? Yeah, about 20 minutes in, counter-protesters walked in from across the street and kind of broke the silence and the relaxed tone of the evening. They were waving American flags. They had their weapons, you know, open carry, and were shouting things like All Lives Matter. Yeah, people at the federal courthouse who were there to stand in solidarity with the Portland protesters were not happy about it. And there were actually some pretty, uh, there were like fights and confrontations. That's totally right. People were up in each other's faces. Right, why do we need to take out, wait, 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 okay, so what are we going to replace? You know, there were barricades happening between the two groups and even a a gun was shot off in the air uh, amidst all the confrontation and people initially couldn't tell where it came from, but They suspected someone who was looking suspicious, kind of running away from the group. They thought it was that person, and a couple of the protesters started following him. And yeah, it was was actually pretty tense, but not a huge police presence from what I could see. One thing that's really interesting to watch when the counter-protesters and the activists start to clash is that not only does everyone start unfurling their best insults or their provocative statements, but a lot of people also whip out their phones because they start recording each other, and it almost seems like a... uh, attempt to provoke and also record so that maybe people can get captured doing uh, illegal activity. And I remember when the uh, shot was fired, there was some confusion. And then about 15, 20 minutes later, a video started popping up that showed a person from behind at about 30 feet away discharging the firearm, but that apparently helped give some leads as to who it was, and I do believe that person was arrested, right? Yeah, the Eugene police sent out a press release later, well, basically in the early hours of Sunday, and they did, in fact, arrest the person who shot off the firearm at, at the Saturday protest. As far as I know, there was a couple more people that were being confrontational with their weapons, too, and that was just between the groups of protesters and counter-protesters, but the whole scene kind of waged on for uh, quite a few more hours for the rest of the night. So yeah, they apparently they marched to the Lane County Jail at one point, and then it looked like things sort of devolved, and there was a group, at least part of this group, who were breaking windows of, of businesses downtown. Yeah, so from what I counted, about 300 people marched from the courthouse to the jail, and from there made a big loop around kind of Fifth Avenue down into downtown, 
and from downtown, moving east on Broadway, a group of protesters, I guess I could call them rioters, by the time this happened, they started yanking out signs from the ground and bashing in windows and businesses like Wells Fargo downtown and moving past that into like the Whole Foods area and then down to Elkhorn and that's when things started getting really out of hand I think. I very vividly remember hearing a bunch of people start going like let's go to Elkhorn and I knew based on the the history that people in the community have had with Elkhorn I knew it wasn't going to be just a run-of-the-mill you know spray some graffiti on the walls. They started grabbing signs from the ground and bashing in the windows that are a little up higher uh, away from arm's distance and started throwing in like firecrackers from what I could see. People were spray painting everywhere on the sidewalk, on the, the, you know, the walls and whatnot. And then a small group even grabbed a dumpster and rolled it out into the middle of Broadway and Hilliard and started a dumpster fire there. What were they saying? It was kind of hard to tell. Actually, there were some mixed feelings, it seemed, from the protesters and the rioters. You know, people were unsure about the legitimacy of what was going on once this started happening. It looked like people were really starting to lose control. So I just heard, you know, a bunch of different things being said, uh, especially between members of the groups. I know it was about a year and a half ago, uh, Stephen Sheehan, the owner of the Elkhorn Brewery, started a coalition called Eugene Wake Up, and it was for business owners who wanted to kind of unite and speak out against what they say was lawlessness from some of the homeless community, uh, shooting up in the uh, entryways of their businesses, uh, feces, needles, um, just uh, random activity that made their customers nervous. And also there was the vandalism incident where a uh, woman, I think, tried to throw a Molotov cocktail through their kitchen and caused, I think, between eight and $9,000 of the damage. And it was a very polarizing move because there are many business owners, I think at least a couple hundred in the Eugene Springfield area, who signed on with the organization. But there are also people, some homeless advocates, who saw that as an anti-homelessness stance. And so it wouldn't surprise me if that was kind of fueling some people's motives to attack the brewery that night. Yeah, and the whole point of, I believe, the march, it ended up turning into like an anti-capitalism, anti-racism stance. Um, and that's something that we've seen here in Eugene uh, happened a couple of weeks ago, and some other businesses were were pretty poorly affected by by those marches and protests. So I think it was much akin to that. And Nathan, the night ended with police stepping in to break up the crowd. What happened? Yeah, once things started getting out of hand downtown, especially by Elkhorn, and that's when I started hearing the the sirens and seeing the lights flashing, bouncing off all the walls of the businesses downtown. And then, of course, the loudspeaker, you know, it was a woman's voice uh, from inside one of the police trucks. Um, was saying, like, this is an unlawful assembly. Everyone needs to disperse. And it was going into kind of a damage control type of scenario when they were trying to push people away from the, the violence and the destruction that was happening. This ended up turning into a pursuit police were just kind of pushing protesters away from downtown and the business into the western Eugene neighborhoods. And then the tear gas was used that night, right? It was just like residual stuff that was shot at protesters as I was kind of following next to the police cars um, who were actually welcoming press um, in the area. They were just saying, you know, keep uh, keep to this side of the street and then, you know, don't get don't get sucked into like the protest area just ahead of us because 
we're going to be using those like munitions and, and tear gas. And from what I saw, that was really effective. And it started breaking down the group and uh, made pr- protesters disperse. I understand, too, that some of the protesters were throwing rocks towards the police. Did he say any of that? I saw plenty of rocks being thrown, full bottles of water being thrown from pretty close range, too. I was surprised. And I believe that's actually what sparked a couple of arrests that happened on the back end of the protest group. I saw there was something that was going around on social media and all over a bunch of news outlets was that a 14-year-old girl was apprehended. I saw another person who I couldn't, I couldn't quite tell you know, who the person was, but they, were, they had a helmet and were masked and fully dressed. And I think they also were, were arrested because, because they were throwing, uh, I, I think it was a water bottle or a rock or something like that. So at the press conference that was held Monday with the mayor and EPD, EPD chief Chris Skinner mentioned that these rocks weren't like normal rocks that were laying around. He believes that those rocks were taken to the protest. Did you happen to see the size of those rocks and if they may not have been there organically? By the time the rocks were being thrown, it was getting pretty dark. So I wasn't able to see, you know, people pluck anything out of their bags or anything like that. But I definitely heard the impact of all these projectiles. And it was definitely more than just like little pebbles that were picked up from the side of the road. Like it would make sense that larger rocks were probably being taken and from somewhere else and being used. How did the tear gas affect you, Nathan? I, I can't imagine walking through that and being able to uh, breathe or feel normal for a while. I was just curious if you kind of just felt your uh, eyes or your nose or mouth tingle or sting. Did they have a particular smell, odor, flavor? I was just, and, and did you go home and rinse your eyes or what? Yeah, I just just curious to know what that experience must have been like. Um, you know, people have warned me that that would likely happen um, if I was following a protest that I'd feel the effects of the tear gas. It had a very like a peppery odor, um, and it was it was thick. You know, I could I could definitely feel it when I took it into my lungs, um, and um, I had a, a few deep breaths of it uh, before I realized what was even going on. It was a unique sensation, and my eyes did start watering, and my nose really started running. And under a mask, it was actually like ugh, it just it just didn't feel very good at all. Then I started coughing a lot. When I did, I realized like I definitely needed to get out of there because I didn't have a respirator or any goggles or any, you know, super protective gear. You were supposed to bring goggles, <laughs> not to mom you, but... <laughs> no, that's 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 something that I am definitely going to invest in. So you know, thank you, but, Elizabeth. <laughs> but to be fair to Nathan, though, uh, when I was assigned to cover the Sunday night event, I hit a couple hardware stores and was told that all the wraparound strap-on goggles were sold out. And my first thought was, oh, maybe people had the same idea about tear gas and protests. But actually, both times when I asked the uh, store clerks, they said, oh, we sold out of those long ago because of COVID-19. There's apparently a lot of people out there who think that wearing these wraparound goggles are a way to protect yourself against the pandemic. Anyway, I'm glad you're safe, Nathan. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate it. Well, moving on to Sunday night, Uh, It seems like it was somewhat in reaction to the Saturday events that protesters called a quote-unquote emergency protest with the headline, No Feds, No Fascists. Mm -hmm. And that also started out at the Eugene Federal Courthouse. And Brian, you covered that event. Tell us about it. It was interesting because at the onset, no organization laid claim to this event. Black Unity and Wall of Moms Eugene both promoted it on their Facebook pages. But there was no name assigned to this. 
And yeah, it was also billed as an emergency protest right on the heels of the Saturday night riots. When I got there, it would start off very gradual and very small. I'd say right at the startup time of 9 p.m., there's only about 50 people there max. And then it just steadily doubled within that hour. But it was very loosely organized. It almost felt like kind of an event without direction and without any real tie-in. If there was an emergency response, it was very hard to pinpoint because a lot of the speakers shared a lot of the same speaking points, I guess, if you will, that I've heard at many other rallies and protests before. No one, to my knowledge, really addressed the previous night's activities. It was just more of the uh, Black Lives Matter, defund police, kind of the same message I'd heard before. And I'd say the only real significant difference was that it was a much quieter evening compared to the night before. I think the main difference was is that very few counter-protesters showed up. In fact, for a while, right across the street, kitty corner from the uh, Wayne Morris Federal Courthouse, just on the edge of the uh, Whole Foods parking lot, was just a lone man with an American flag who was shouting all lives matter and kind of the same standard um, retorts as we've heard as well. And at some point, after uh, a few brief speeches, uh, the crowd went over and uh, the counter-protesters by this point had maybe five, six people and there were shouting matches, there was some shoving, and everyone again just pulled out their cameras, their video, and, and began trying to provoke each other, I think. It was just a lot of yelling and face-to-face confrontations. The wall of moms, I'd say there was about maybe five of them max, trying to uh, form that human barrier. And then at some point, it just kind of tapered off and people decided to march to the Lane County Jail to highlight the hunger strike and admonish the EPD with chants and taunts. And this went on for about a good hour or two. Well, it seems like it went on for quite a while because I watched some of the stream. Someone was streaming it on Facebook and Mm -hmm. it seemed like they stood out there for quite a few hours and it was hard to understand what they were trying to accomplish. Yeah, and I think the title alone is probably our, our best clue, No Fed, No Fascists. Of course, we've heard in the news in previous weeks about the federal intervention that's been happening in Portland, uh, cracking down on the protests around the federal sites there. And then President Trump recently proclaimed that he's going to be doing the same in cities like Chicago and Albuquerque. And if you look on social media and if you ask around town, there's a lot of people who claim that the feds are already here, that they've seen men and unmarked vehicles around town. At the same time, there's no conclusive evidence. I did ask someone at the Eugene Police Department if they knew or had requested federal assistance, and they said no. And then take into account, too, that uh, President Trump himself, I think, just is, is almost proud to proclaim that he's sending federal agents to cities where there's, quote-unquote, lawlessness and, and out-of-control rioting, you know, you know, his stance on it. I can't picture him deploying federal personnel to Eugene and not publicly showcasing that move. So there's suspicion, you know, there's um, hearsay. But at this point, there just doesn't seem to be any formal presence of federal agents. And I think Chief Skinner himself at a press conference said, if there are federal personnel, they're pretty much staying within the confines of the uh, federal courthouse. And that's the extent. So yeah, the night went on, more yelling, more more chanting. I think the only disruption happened uh, actually during an interview I did with a uh, Lane Community College student about her thoughts on federal intervention. And apparently uh, a man who was uh, 
carrying a firearm unholstered it after being provoked by someone else who grabbed their phone or, or did something. And there's this brief flurry of activity as people run screaming away from the front of the Lane County Courthouse. The man was found and arrested, but that was kind of the uh, incident that seemed to make this uh, distinctive from others that I've seen. Yeah, apparently there was someone who actually had the word press on their helmet and was carrying a firearm and having some run-ins with protesters. Mm -hmm. And apparently they were detained by police, but not actually arrested. Yeah, they, they had a black helmet with a black gas mask on that covered the entire face, hose that just kind of dangled from it. And I didn't see the fire myself, but apparently some people did. And uh, yeah, I know there was uh, one agitator who was really trying to draw people's attention by screaming loudly and pointing at him. And everyone just pretty much just walked by. I think, uh, strangely enough, in this uh, open carry state of Oregon, many people have become accustomed to people on all sides of the uh, events showing up with a firearm. There was a Black Lives Matter supporter I talked to that same night who had a sidearm, and he said that's just to help protect myself and my kids. So it's, I think, strange as it sounds, I think some people have actually become uh, accustomed to the site. Brian, you mentioned the press conference with Eugene Police Chief Skinner and Elizabeth, you went to that press conference on Monday. What did he say about uh, police tactics on Saturday night when officers deployed tear gas? So throughout the night, as Nathan has mentioned, APD ended up coming out, asking people to disperse, asking people to leave. And then at one point in the night, they decide to use tear gas once it was determined it was a riot. House Bill 4208 clearly defines when CS gas can be used. And we're adhering to that, to the letter of the law, just like we did on Saturday night with admonishments and declaring a riot only after the significant criminal activity was occurring. And even then we used it judiciously just to protect officers that were getting rocks thrown at them. We have heard now that eight people were arrested that night and Chief Skinner also described the force that was used and what it means to use unnecessary force. And he mentioned that it is standard to have at least two officers on one person and then possibly additional officers if needed. So that was interesting because I, I personally just was not sure what qualified as a necessary force. You know, we mentioned the 14-year-old girl who had been arrested and I, I think there was some questions about how she was treated when she was arrested. And so I, I wonder if that was if that was the question that came out of it that he was responding to. Yeah, so he said that at that time they did not know that she was a 14-year-old girl. They just saw her as a female that had the capacity to throw rocks, is what he said. And so that's how they responded to that situation. And he just echoed the fact that that they didn't use unnecessary force in detaining that individual, even though she was a 14-year-old that had multiple officers on her. And apparently they released her soon after, once they understood her situation. Correct. So she was in custody and then she was released to her parents. And then he said that she will now go through the juvenile system in terms of any potential charges. So at that same press conference you attended, um, Eugene Mayor Lucy Venice spoke about Saturday night's events condemning acts of vandalism. What else did she say about it? So Mayor Venice said that these acts of violence are not accepted here and that they are unacceptable and essentially is hoping to see more peaceful protest uh, like we have been having. These violent actions are unacceptable 
and unworthy. The antagonizing presence of heavily armed counter-protesters, including one who shot his gun in the middle of the event on Saturday, have only added unnecessary fuel to create a more volatile situation. Their actions are not welcome here. And even city councilor Greg Evans mentioned that he doesn't want to see violence as well. They both talked about the upcoming task force that's being created to kind of help diversify and modify the Eugene police force as well as other aspects of the city and make it more inclusive for people of color. So they're hoping that this doesn't derail that progress. And they even mentioned that there is no going back, that we have to move forward. And so it sounds like they really are hoping that there are no more riots and that there are only peaceful protests that don't lead to property damage. Nathan, you watched the Monday night Eugene City Council meeting. Was there any talk about what happened over the weekend? Totally. It's actually interesting hearing Elizabeth talk about, you know, the reactions from the mayor as well as the police chief because I heard from them last night during the city council work session and the city council meeting. The city council meeting, they brought on police chief Chris Skinner and he talked for about 15 or 20 minutes just about his expectations with the police force, especially in situations like that where, you know, protests start peacefully but then become pretty aggravated and become, you know, riotous. Was there some public testimony? The public forum that came after, I think, really brought the heat. Um, However, the police chief, I don't know if he was still online for that. I couldn't see his face uh, on the meeting, which usually indicates that they're they're sitting in. Mm -hmm. So what ended up happening is the public forum takes, they give 90 minutes to the public. And um, in the last few weeks, this this 90 minutes has been filled out every time, usually with unhappy community members. Some of the community members were admonishing the city council because they were thanking the police chief for how they were treating like protesters and how they were treating the situation. And then others were thanking the city council members for the great job that they were doing, but then coming back and saying that they're unhappy with, you know, how they've been dealing with everything that's been going on. And, you know, there's also uh, some groups of people that were talking about, you know, voting system and uh, upcoming elections. And it was it was just uh, it was pretty it was pretty it seemed hostile. That's what I, that's what I'd say about it. Yeah, I, I would just add that it's very interesting to note where people draw the line as far as what defines a riot there. If you follow some of the social media threads on our news sites and others, There are many people who don't consider property damage a form of violence, and there are many who do. So I think people are going to be making the argument that uh, a lot of the damage being done to both local businesses and uh, city and uh, state government sites is a form of, uh, I guess, taxpayer dollars being subjected to damaging, and and, ultimately we are all going to pay the price for it at some point. So I don't know. And Elizabeth, you reached out to the folks with Black Unity, which at least historically has been um, really pushing for peaceful protest and and decrying destruction of property. And you asked them about the Saturday event and, and how they responded to what happened. Yeah. So like you said, I asked their opinion on the riots and the damage, and they weren't necessarily against it. From the message that I received, it sounds like they themselves do not promote property damage. However, they did say that they want 
people of color and people who are protesting to be able to express themselves however they see fit. The the, the phrase um, peace policing has been used a few times, and Mm -hmm. I guess that and diversity of tactics for some gives them room to have, I guess, releases them from supervising or dictating to others how they want to express their um, feelings about social injustice. I think it's interesting to talk about this as we have watched the ceremonies around the memorials for Congressman John Lewis, who passed away a couple weeks ago, you know, he um, he was part of the nonviolent movement for civil rights in the 1960s. And he's always been an advocate for activism and an advocate for civil rights and certainly encouraging young people to be um, to be out there and, and to be pushing for for Black Lives Matter. Um, but I wonder what he would think about these tactics because they certainly don't seem to be in keeping with the idea of nonviolent resistance, which has been very effective in making change in this country. Yeah, yeah, it would be interesting because uh, one of the most famous events he participated in was the crossing of the Edmund Pettus Bridge in 1965. And after crossing it, they were confronted with these heavily armed riot police and, and hurt, beaten, pushed, shoved to the ground. And the entire time, they did not fight back. And that was their statement, that they would make, that they would plant their flag uh, basically on the principle of nonviolence. So it is interesting to see that legacy commemorated this week at the same time we're seeing some people use destruction and and violence as a way to further their idea of what the message should be. I think this is part of a larger problem associated with not having a national BLM leader. Like we, there isn't like one individual or even, or even a few individuals that people can turn to. So we have our local group leaders, but even our local group leaders, who are they turning to? How are they, who are they looking to for advice and and for just ideas on like how to have nonviolent protests. And I think that is part of the problem that, that mm. we're facing. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Elizabeth. And also, I really wonder how much training there is. You know, I know that for uh, people in the environmental movement who do activism, they do all kinds of trainings to kind of, you know, prepare and and have strategies and ways to cope if they're being, you know, shot with tear gas or something. Yeah, this is probably a little bit of a, a digression, but um, I think you have a really good point. I agree, too. Because <laughs> you're right. Like, there are trainings. And I mean, for social justice, there just isn't any, to my knowledge. And, yeah, at least that we know of. And that would probably be a good thing to be reporting on is, is how... Um, how, if at all, folks are educating themselves about how to protest. Because you would think you would hear education from the NAACP, but I mean, at least locally, I feel like we haven't really heard them speak out about protests. So who are they supposed to turn to? Well, I'm going to wrap it up, I think. Thanks so much, everyone, for joining us for the Northwest Passage podcast from KLCC News. I'm KLCC News Director Rachel McDonald. I'm reporter Brian Bull. I'm reporter Elizabeth Gabriel. And I'm reporter Nathan Bouquet. Bye. Bye. See you next time. Yo, later.
Music for the Northwest Passage podcast is composed and performed by Don Latarski.